Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I, I want to do a quick little intro this week of this, uh, if we're going to call it best of content or past stuff that you probably have not heard that we're going to dredge out here over the next few weeks while I finish up something that I'm working on. Uh, this one here is a, a piece I did after an event that I was part of that the Washington Post put on in Washington, D.C. back in, I want to say this was 2014, although it might have been might have been earlier than that. Let's put a pin in 2014. I think that's when it was. It was interesting. <laughs> I'm I, Well, let's just put it this way. Being in a room with the vice president of the United States was pretty darn cool. And it was a small, like intimate room. Like there was not more than a couple hundred people there total. Uh, I spoke to people after the vice president, which sounds really cool and impressive until you understand that essentially everybody who mattered uh, was there, uh, sat through the whole morning session, listened to everybody. Uh, as soon as the vice president talked, they got up and left. So I was there uh, with <laughs> about maybe a fourth of the original audience. And those were people who mattered to me. But in, in the big picture of things, the vice president was the big draw. Um, I'm still a little ticked off at the uh, at the Washington Post for the kind of technology snafu, the the like archaic technology they had me use that kind of screwed up my presentation. But it's it's okay. We'll forgive and move on. Um, nonetheless, I want to share this one with you because it's it's kind of an interesting uh, look back uh, to a time when you know public policy mattered. <laughs> People discussed. Uh, you know, nuances of different policy approaches. Uh, what I do here is go through and, and try to hash it and split the baby a little bit um, between, uh, you know, a, a, what would be a left of center infrastructure policy approach and a right of center uh, infrastructure policy approach. And not split, split the baby as in, you know, one side wants uh, five, the other side wants zero, two and a half. Um, but try to draw from, kind of the best of both conversations to create kind of a, a different space for where we're at with Strong Towns. So uh, with that as an introduction, uh, here is uh, this week's podcast. Enjoy. It all comes back to the oldest story in the history of this country. Build, 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 build. That's the story. You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I want to start this show with a disclaimer of sorts, because I know many of you are political creatures, and you affiliate with one side of the political aisle or the other. In this country, we have two main parties, and so you're often forced to pick a side. And I know a lot of you feel very vested in your side of the aisle, the party that you have aligned with. Don't listen to this podcast, because what I'm going to say is going to offend you. It's going to make you upset. 
It's just going to make you mad, and there's no good reason for you to listen to it. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm not trying to influence you, per se, on politics. You believe what you want. You do what you want. I don't want you to listen to this podcast because I don't want to get the reams of mail on how I've, you know, distorted some nuanced point of someone's view. I don't want to hear that. I, I don't want it. So if you're a partisan person, if you're a person who hears the other side of the aisle talk, finds nothing redeeming at all about it, and hears your side talk, and hears everything confirming your worldview, don't listen to this podcast. I welcome you to be part of the Strong Towns movement, <laughs> but I would challenge you to a degree to open up your mind, because really, our two political parties are a wreck. Neither of them, from a strong town standpoint, represents the America that we see, the America that we want, or the America that we envision. I think at times, and I'm going to point this out today in the podcast, they careen into a little bit of what we're about. But I have gone from being someone who, oh, 20 years ago was very involved in politics as someone who the last decade has not been involved at all and been actually increasingly disgusted by the whole thing because I look at the political spectrum and I don't see anybody who represents me. So if you're deeply partisan, if you're deeply attached to one of the two parties, set this one out. I'll have a new podcast for you next week. Last October, I was invited to participate in a Washington Post forum in the nation's capital called America Answers. The series was supposed to take a look at transportation issues, and the title American Answers, the idea was that we would find out what America thinks about this. It was quite an honor to be invited. I really appreciated the invitation. Everybody was very gracious. I'm not going to uh, say anything disparaging about, except just to point out that I think the Washington Post version of quote unquote America is a little bit different than mine would be. There were a lot of great speakers there, a lot of people doing really innovative stuff. Not everybody was an in the beltway kind of thinker or an in the beltway kind of person. But let's just say that, you know, the few minutes that the Strong Towns message got, you know, piled on with some technical snafus, which I don't get. But anyway, there wasn't a lot of contrarian opinions being offered in the American Answers Forum at the Washington Post. Nonetheless, I was grateful to have the invitation to be in a room with the vice president. And actually, I spoke to after the vice president to be there and be part of that was really, really exciting to have someone like Andrew Card, a person you'll remember who was the guy who whispered in George Bush's ear, the second George Bush, President Bush, on September 11th. He was the one in the famous photo whispering in his ear that America is under attack. That was Andrew Card. He was there as well and gave a talk. We're going to hear a little bit from him in this podcast. And then Ed Rendell is the third person I'm going to focus on. Ed Rendell, we've here called the anti-Chuck, actually. Ed Rendell is a former governor of Pennsylvania, where Andy Card is a Republican, Joe Biden is a Democrat. Ed Rendell is a Democrat, but has been one of these, I'll say, crossover Democrats, maybe. He's not conservative, and the Republican Party has not embraced him. But in his role now as a, I was going to say shill, that would have been kind of mean, um, as a spokesman, I'm trying not to be mean here, as a spokesman for the infrastructure lobby, has 
tended to try to cross over the aisle a little bit more than maybe what he did as a politician. Anyway, the three of them, I'm going to feature some of their conversation today because I think it highlights a little bit of what our board chair, Andrew Burleson, described to me a couple years ago as the kind of crazy paradigm that exists in our politics today. I'm going to paraphrase Andrew, but I, I agree with him. Maybe I'll just say it in my words, and, and you can say that I'm, I'm paraphrasing what Andrew said. Andrew basically made the point to me that Republicans today in this country, a party that is identified with the right, the conservative side of the aisle, Republicans often have the right solutions, but they're focused on all the wrong problems. And you're going to hear that out of Andy Card today. The Democrats, on the other hand, tend to focus on all the right problems, but they've got the bizarrely wrong solutions. And you're going to hear that from the vice president and Ed Rendell. I tend to agree with that. When I hear Democrats at their best, they are speaking about the middle class. They're speaking about income inequality. They're speaking about opportunity. They're speaking about all these things. But then when they come back with the policies, I'm just like, oh my gosh, you couldn't be undermining your own objective more than if you did what you're proposing to do. The Republicans, on the other hand, talk about all these other things that I don't think really resonate with a lot of people and don't resonate often with me, but yet every now and then veer into what the correct policy response would actually be. Let me allow these guys in their own voice to cue up what the problem with infrastructure and transportation spending in particular is in the United States. And we'll start with Andy Card, the former chief of staff and a former transportation secretary. Give, if you were to give a grade to our transportation network uh, as it exists right now, what would you give it? C minus and falling. And it's primarily because it's an old system now. During the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, it was kind of a new system. Today, most of the developing world has newer systems than our systems. So we're kind of stuck in yesterday. All right. In terms of analyzing the problem, pretty hard to disagree with that, right? We got started building our system way before all these other emerging countries. Uh, our system is older. It's at a different point in its life. And right now, we're, we're not adjusting to that. We're not taking care of that. Here is the way Ed Rendell describes it. The American Society of Civil Engineers, in its most recent report, estimated that to get the American infrastructure to fair condition, and I want to emphasize fair condition, we have to spend $1.6 trillion over the next eight years. That's $200 billion a year. Coincidentally, a BAF study done three years ago came up with the same $200 billion figure. All right, I'm going to be cherry picking quotes here. So I welcome you to go through and I'll post a link to the video. But I'm not misrepresenting Ed Rendell when he says, here's the problem. The American Society of Engineers has outlined it perfectly. We don't have enough money. And the problem is that we've got all this stuff to do and we don't have enough money. This is about big, bold visions, but it's also a basic blocking and tackling. Because we know that the current state of infrastructure is simply unacceptable. The American Society of Civil Engineers points out we need $3.6 trillion in infrastructure investments by 2020. All right. And there you have the vice president saying roughly the same thing. Like, look, this is about vision. This is about being bold. And the American Society of Civil Engineers says we're short of all this money. We're short of money. We need money. That's kind of the predictable part, right? 
It's even more interesting to me, though, to get in depth a little bit and understand how these people view the problems. And in other words, if you were to attack the system, what would be the things that you would go after? Let's start with Andrew Card, who I think has, in a micro sense, has identified all the wrong problems. So I would say my priority, if I were Secretary of Transportation again, would really be to mitigate congestion. Congestion of the movement of people, congestion of the movement of goods. This is a theme that he said a couple of times. Congestion is the main problem that we suffer from. I think when you have an automobile-centric view of the world, congestion is always going to be your problem. We've spoken a number of times in our whole Transportation in the Next American City program talks about how congestion in certain ways is a positive thing. Congestion on our roads, not so much. Congestion on our streets, in our cities, very much so. Congestion drives different responses that are not on the table today. Let's hear a little bit more from Andy Card. Because I, I disagree with him. I, I do not think congestion is our biggest problem. Let's understand Andy Card a little bit more by hearing about how he talks about a rail investment that was made at Tyson's Corner. Washington, D.C. is a good place to study because they have lots of interaction and they've got the smartest people in public policy involved in it. But they're not always helping the other mode. And I'll, I'll point to... The, the transit system that now picks up people out in Tyson's Corner. Great. I see the, the metro goes by. It's wonderful. Silver line. But you can't, yeah, you can't park a car there. So how do you get there? There aren't any sidewalks to walk there. So you can't walk there. So I think they did a good job of saying we want the Silver Line to pick up people and take them from Tyson's to downtown D.C., but we didn't give them a good way to get people to get on the subway. So Andy Card understands that we have an old system, and he understands why we're different than the rest of the world, which got started a little bit later than us. But the thinking is still stuck in the 1950s and 1960s, right? Congestion is our worst problem. When you build things like transit, it should be to relieve congestion, right? It's not about land use. It's not about jobs. It's about relieving congestion. And if you don't put in the park and ride, if you don't put in the facilities to cater to the automobile, that investment is falling short. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. Obviously, the opposite of a strong towns approach, right? The strong towns approach would say, if you're going to put in the transit stop, you need to have the development. You don't, don't make it a park and ride. You're losing money if you do that. That's not Andy Card's approach. That's not what he sees as the problem. Let's listen to the vice president a little bit as he describes what he sees the problems, and he's giving a speech on transportation policy. But when he's framing that conversation, this is how he frames it as the problems he sees us needing to solve. And I know you've all noticed, you have everyone from the Fed to Standard & Poor's to the IMF reporting the greatest threat right now to long-term long sustained growth is income inequality and the enormous concentration of wealth. It's really bizarre to me to hear him cite the Federal Reserve in that, as if the Federal Reserve isn't the greatest mechanism ever created to engender income inequality. Nonetheless, you have the vice president there talking about what I agree, I think, is the one of the greatest symptoms of the current system and one of the huge obstacles that we face as a country to revitalization, that being income inequality. Our current system is creating massive amounts of income inequality, and that's 
a huge problem. Let's get a little more specific on transportation and listen to the way the vice president frames this. And it costs in every way. The cost of middle class families is simply too high. Right now, transportation is the second biggest expense for middle class families behind housing. The average American spends $7,600 per year on transportation, more than they spend on food, more than they spend, twice as much as they spend on out-of-pocket health care costs. I couldn't agree with the vice president more. And this gets to kind of the fundamental problems with our system, right? It creates enormous amount of costs for people, for individuals, for families, very few choices for them in terms of, you know, the huge ante that you have to spend to be in the game in most places. And the places where you, you don't have to spend that ante on the automobile insurance and maintenance and gasoline and all that, because those places are so rare, you have such enormous property values that it's really difficult to afford living there. So what we've done is we've created this system that has the exact effects that the vice president is talking about. It It is squeezing the middle class in a huge, huge way. I want to just play one more little clip from the vice president because it describes a little bit, I think, of what he sees as a way out of this, or at least the mechanisms of what it would look like, what a successful, prosperous place would be. Listen to the vice president here. All of you here are the ones revitalizing communities uh, with uh, new transit stations, connecting people, bike lanes, river walks, helping business compete uh, with uh, wider roads and safer bridges. So you've got the vice president, in a sense, describing a strong town. You've got him talking about revitalizing neighborhoods, bringing places back, making strategic investments. We're going to have a difference here when things come up. But let's just say in a big picture sense, the vice president's describing a strong town. And he's saying, look, this is the problem. So you've got on one hand, someone saying the problem is congestion, which I fundamentally disagree with. And another one saying the problem is our system's creating income inequality. It's squeezing the middle class. It's creating enormous amounts of transportation costs. And we need to be revitalizing our cities, our places, our neighborhoods. We need to be making those strategic investments. This is the paradigm of understanding the problem. And before we get on to what these guys are using or referring to as solutions or the ways they would approach these problems, I want to give you, because I think it's a really revealing of this mindset, I want to give you one more clip from Andrew Card as he talks about the differences between the Northeast and where he's from, the state of Texas. Now, Texas has an advantage. They've got a lot of land. The Northeast Corridor, it's, it's expensive to get land. So as Texas is doing their thing, we have to look for different solutions in the Northeast. And I think we can do that. But we've got to kind of take the blinders off. All right. So Texas has an advantage. They have a lot of land. It's bizarre to me. It's, to me, such 1950s thinking to say Texas has an advantage because they have a lot of land. And understand what he's saying. He's saying we have so much land, and my gosh, if you go to Texas, you'll get a sense of what this is. We have so much land that we can just 
build whatever we need to. You know, we can have highways all over the place. We don't have to spend a lot of money acquiring right away when we're going to build these crazy clover leaves all over the place, all these interchanges, all this new growth we get when we build this highway infrastructure. We're very lucky in Texas because we have all this land. The land is a great thing. Here's what there's zero comprehension of. Texas is not lucky because they have a lot of land. Texas has to spend an enormous sum of money connecting very dispersed places because it's so huge. That's not an advantage. That's a liability. It's an advantage if your economic development model is a bunch of frontage roads and big boxes along interchanges. You drive from Austin to San Antonio and it's like 90 miles of that crap over and over and over again. And if that's your economic development model, Texas has an enormous advantage, right? But that development model is driving us into bankruptcy. It's bankrupting our cities, our states, our governments. Texas can see this now. They don't have anywhere near the funds they need to maintain the systems they've built. And so what Andrew Card is saying is an advantage that Texas has is actually their greatest disadvantage. It's their greatest obstacle and problem that they need to overcome. How do we connect all these far-flung, widely dispersed places? And they've not figured that out because they think the way Andy Card thinks. The dominant approach is what Andy Card thinks. Let's look at the other part of his statement. He said, in the northeast of this country, they have a disadvantage because land costs a lot, right? Land is very expensive. Why is that a disadvantage? I mean, to me, that's telling me that the land has a lot of value, right? And if the land already has a lot of value, when we make good strategic investments, we're going to be able to get a lot more out of that. You don't have to spend as much money to connect people because they're not as far apart. And the development pattern is a lot more compact, a lot more consolidated. It's not as widely dispersed. And so you don't have to spend as much money connecting huge amounts of people, of goods, of services across, you know, broad areas because you can do it relatively cost effectively. To me, this is one of the most revealing things because he's got the entire benefit equation completely backward. Let's switch to the solutions, though. And this is where I think Andy Card is going to salvage himself. And I'm going to save him to the end. But let me just play for you the anti-Chuck, the Ed Rendell's. Here's the ideas. Here's what we need to do to solve this problem. Remember, I said, I think they've identified the problem correctly. I think the vice president has got the problem nailed. But let's go through a litany here of the things that they think need to be done in order to solve this problem. Let me give you an example of how investment can work and does work. The stimulus program. Most Americans would say the stimulus was a failure. It wasn't. The funny thing is, is I think most Americans would call the stimulus a failure. And, and it's not because of the political hype. It's because of what they saw. I saw here in my home state, we had shovel-ready projects go, right? They were two of the biggest boondoggles that could have had. It's fascinating to me because the whole concept of a shovel-ready project is flawed in and of itself. Understand what a shovel-ready project is. It's a project that essentially the bureaucracy identified and brought forward completed the plans, did all the stuff that needed to happen to make it a real project. And it got to the political part of the process. 
And the local politicians just said, no way. No way are we doing that. Uh, that's not worth the resources we're going to have to put into this thing, right? It would be nice, and maybe you could convince us that it's a good thing. But when we're doing triage here in our communities of the things that need to be done, that one's not on the list. We're not going to do that. Or you got to the end, and the public rose up and said, look, there's no way we're spending the money to do that. That's what most of the shovel-ready projects were. They were projects that had been because of the messy complexities that go on at the local level when you have to actually make tough decisions. They got put on the shelf. So here comes the stimulus bill. And what happens? All this money flows freely, and the cities say, you know what? Uh, if we're going to get free money to do it, why not? That was a pipe dream before. We couldn't have justified it on our budget, but if you're going to come in and give us all the money to do it, we're going to do it. Stimulus was a success. I'm not trying to have a Keynesian argument here. We can do that at a different date. But in terms of this being a great way to invest in infrastructure, it clearly was not. Let's hear from the vice president. The great presidents and the great governors were people who, in the midst of being told they could not afford to do something, went ahead and did it because they knew what the consequences and the effects would be of their investments. I just kind of recoil at the approach here. And I get what he's saying. I mean, if we give the vice president the benefit of the doubt, he's saying great leaders, even despite opposition to great ideas, they have a vision and they see it through and they push it through, right? And, you know, when we're visionary leaders, we just got to go for it and we got to do what we know is right. And in a sense, I get that. I mean, I, I want to believe in that. I want to believe in that narrative, that great man in history narrative, right? The person, and I, I said man because we've had all male presidents, but the great person in history who has this vision of what the world should be and everyone's against them and they're against the status quo. All the things are lined up against them and they persevered through it. That is a very American kind of story, right? I get it. I get it. But think about what he said. He said, they don't worry about how they're going to pay for it. They don't worry about the financial implications because they have this vision. They see it through. And to me, I think for a nation as big as ours, as strong as ours, with the ability from uh, whether we're talking a military standpoint or whether we're talking an economic standpoint, our ability to print money, our ability to take on debt, that type of thinking scares the heck out of me. Because if you have a vision in this country and your vision is highways everywhere, you're just going to go do it. And in a sense, the vice president is arguing for that. Like, look, this is my vision. I'm not going to ponder about what's going to happen a generation from now or two. I believe strongly that it's going to work out. I'm not really taking the time to look at why we're in such a difficult position now. I just think we need to be leaders. We need to think about the future. We need to go ahead. To me... This is, looking back, confirmation bias, and looking forward, just drunken, unfounded optimism. And to me, this is some of the most reckless kind of thinking that you can have when you're approaching a situation like this, which is really about dollars and cents. We need to uncap the ability of states to toll previously federally accredited highways. 
Now, there's a proposal from Ed Rendell. We need to have toll roads, and we need to be able to go back and take roads that were built with gas tax funds where there haven't been a toll and make a toll. I'm not necessarily against tolling, and I think tolling is a great thing, but understand what we've done. We've created a system that we sold as being essentially free. You pay your gas tax, and then you drive wherever you want, and as long as you're paying your gas tax when you fill up your car, uh, you're going to pay for it. And so people have arranged themselves on the landscape. They've responded to those market incentives. And now the government's saying, hey, uh, we didn't think that one through real well. And now we're going to go back and extract more taxes from you for the thing you already paid for. To me, this is the backward way to go about doing this. But this is one of the proposals that Ed Rendell would put on the table. And we came up with an idea. It wasn't ours. It was an idea presented to us of that Ray LaHood came up with, they call them Tiger Grants. And it was designed to, um, to uh, connect elements of our transportation hub so that uh, we could help cities and counties and states chart new ways of working. So the vice president likes Tiger Grants. I know a lot of you transportation advocates out there think that the Tiger Grant was a great program. Fundamentally, I hated the Tiger program, and, and I, I think it's a horrible ho- – the, the idea that you're going to have competition between governments to see who can borrow the most matching funds to get a Tiger project, it's a distortion upon a distortion upon a distortion. It is one of the most bizarre things. And really, the Tiger projects that we saw here in central Minnesota – we had one project here that was the most bizarre, unnecessary, crazy project that I've seen. And it was not at all aligned with anything that anybody listening to this podcast or, or really advocating for strong towns would have wanted to see. It was an overpass of a highway. And the idea was that this overpass would create a bunch of economic development opportunities. It was promoted as a way to help the Amtrak line which I'm telling you, we have the empire builder that comes through here twice a day, once in each direction. It is not being held up by anything going on in the little city of Staples. There's no question about that, especially at four in the morning when it comes through. It's just a bizarre, bizarre project. Now I'm, I'm hearing, I'm starting to hear from these guys what they think. They want more of these projects that have actually been the drivers of the problems that they're trying to solve. Let's get another one from Ed Rendell. We need to take the TIFIA program, the loan guarantee program, which MAP 21 increased from 200 million to a billion. We need to double that to $2 billion. Even with the billion dollar increase, uh, there's still a huge waiting list for TIFIA projects. Okay, this is a little in the weeds, but the idea here is that there's a loan guarantee program, right? If you want to take on a whole bunch of debt, we'll secure that debt so you can get a lower interest rate because taking on more debt to build more stuff is wonderful. Let's just do way, way more of that. And lo and behold, there's so much demand for places to take on more and more debt. You know, there's so much demand for this program that Ed Rendell, the guy in the trenches, the guy lobbying for more infrastructure spending says, look, we need to allow cities and states to be able to do more of this. We need to increase this program so everybody takes on more debt and more liabilities to continue to grow the system. This would be a fantastic thing. That's why we've been pushing what we call the Grow America Act, uh, which has, uh, which so many of you have supported. We need a multi-year investment in infrastructure. We can't, uh, we can't keep doing these month-to-month fixes when the Highway Trust Fund is about to run out of money. 
I mean, it's simply unacceptable. All right, so we've got something called the Grow America Act now, which is essentially, here's some more taxes, here's some more money to continue doing the same system. We're going to continue to do everything that we're doing now today without really questioning it, reforming it all that much. We're going to add a whole bunch more money so we can do some other things that other people want to do. So everybody continues to get what they want. There's no real hard choices made. We're just going to expand the pie in terms of what's going to cities, what's going to states for transportation so we can get more, more more, more. We need to uncap private activity bonds. They're capped at a level now. There's no reason not to uncap them. Again, private activity bonds. Now we're back to borrowing more money again, right? We need to uncap these. Why Why is there a cap on how much you can borrow? You should be able to borrow unlimited amounts of money, right? This is, again, the reckless delusion of this system. The idea that we need bold leadership, We have this vision. We have bold leadership. We need people who will step up and see it through. We look back in history. We know what made us great. It was all these investments, all these programs, all this building of new stuff. And if we just unleash our ability to borrow a whole bunch of money, we can continue with this bold, bold vision, really unchecked by any type of fiscal reality. Because as modern as we're trying to be, and at times, uh, uh, as the times dictate, it all comes back to the oldest story in the history of this country. Build, 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 build. That's the story. And we build it on the backs of hard-working women and men. And when we did, we created a middle class. We created jobs people can live on. Raise a family on. So the oldest story is that we build, build, build. And build, 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 build is the way we created a middle class. It's the way we get wealthy. It's the way we create prosperity. As, as if the entire New Deal, the whole WPA and all that brought us prosperity, right? As if we could just uh, you know, put everybody in a sense in a government program and project, and we would have tons and tons of prosperity. This is bizarre to me. This is bizarro land to me because it completely ignores all the side effects and all the problems of this. I mean, how did we get so much stuff built that we now can't maintain? It was by build, 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 build. How do we do urban renewal and gut all of our cities and throw away all of these generations of wealth and productivity that have been created? It was because we went out with our vision, our huge pocketbooks, and our ability to borrow tons and tons of money, and we build, 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 build. I do think that this is one of the oldest stories in humanity. It's the hubris of centralized systems. It's the hubris of power. And as we heard from Nassim Taleb the last couple of weeks, these systems are able to grow very robustly, right? We can engineer all kinds of growth. We can engineer all kinds of job creation. But what do we give up in the process? We give up resiliency. We give up our anti-fragile nature. We become weaker and more fragile as time goes on. And so we hear the vice president at the beginning of this whole conversation talking about middle class families being squeezed, about transportation costing so much today. Those are all byproducts. The whole income inequality equation, those are all byproducts of a centralized command economy. 
of an economy where we try to create jobs at the block level with huge programs thousands of miles away. We are using sledgehammers, nuclear detonations to do microsurgery at the block level, and we can't do it elegantly. And what we give up in this whole process is that anti-fragile nature of our places. We become, our cities become weak financially, they become frayed socially, they become frayed culturally. This is the split here. Now, let me play for you Andy Card's approach to this stuff, because I've already said that I think Andy Card has all the wrong problems. He's diagnosed the system completely wrong. If his values were applied to this system, let's just say that if we were mixing <laughs> Andy Card's values and Andy Card's objectives with the Vice President Biden's and Ed Rendell's methods, we would have a, an absolute apocalypse on our hands. Let me play for you a little bit the way Andy Card would deal with some of these problems and the values that he is bringing to deal with the, the problems as he sees them. The federal government has a huge responsibility, but users should have the primary responsibility for paying. All right. So now you hear Andy Card talking about feedback mechanisms, right? This is the hallmark of an anti-fragile system. You get the feedback mechanism as close as you can to the problem and you get much better feedback. Users pay. When users pay, you know what is needed, what isn't needed. There's a direct market feedback mechanism. Our transportation network should be to the extent possible uh, user financed. User financed. We have to find a better way to measure use. And we have been measuring use for a very long time by how many gallons of gas do you buy? And we're gonna tax that. Probably we should start thinking about how many miles do you travel? How much weight are you putting out there? And how many miles is it traveling? So Ed Rendell would say toll roads, right? We're just going <laughs> to try to extract taxes from the existing system without getting a whole lot of feedback on it. But you've got Andy Card here who's saying, you know, I, I get the fact that this is an old system. I get the fact that we built this a long time ago. And when we set it up, the gas tax made some sense, right? It was a feedback mechanism, however kind of rough it was. It was a feedback mechanism that told us the demand for the system. That That's long been divorced from actual demand. What we need to do is establish a better feedback mechanism. And really, we're talking about getting into mileage taxes and maybe taxing people based on the amount of weight, the amount of damage they're creating in the system. These are policies that actually get to that anti-fragile nature. They're the ones that actually have some complexity to them where there's real good feedback mechanism for what demand there actually is. And so Andy Carter's absolutely, he's not standing there advocating for a mileage tax, but he's saying, you know, hey, we, this is the kind of stuff we need to look at. This is the kind of stuff that will give us a better outcome than what we're doing now. And in that, he is absolutely correct. I'd like to find a way to have trucks find a, a, a I'm going to say a path to a market that involves as few cars as possible so that they can get in and out quickly. Mm -hmm. And that mean, may mean dedicated highways for trucks to deliver goods, or an incentive to deliver goods in the middle of the night rather than 9 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. 
those are some of the things I would do, but I, I would take a look at the funding mechanisms that come from uh, use formulas that we haven't thought about. I love this thinking. Let's, let's create an incentive for trucks to deliver in the middle of the night. Andy Card is starting to propose things or think of ways to use the current system better, right? To get more out of it. Instead of just throwing more money at build, 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 build more, how do we nuance this system to get more out of it? This is the type of thinking that we need. When he talks about a dedicated roadway for big truck traffic, I'm sure a lot of you just cringe, right? Like, oh my gosh, how could we do that? That's exactly the kind of stuff we need. When we talk at Strong Towns about the difference between a road and a street, what we're talking about fundamentally is the difference between moving things between places over great distance and having commerce and economic activity happen within a place. When we're talking about moving things over great distances, the one thing that we've done to impair that more than anything else is add tons of useless local trips to the equation. They're all subsidized. They all cost the taxpayer vast amounts of money, and they all serve relatively little purpose, right? They could be done in so many other ways if there was actually a market mechanism that gave feedback to people to make different choices. Right now, the feedback that people get is that there's congestion. We want to take care of that, go build a bunch more stuff, and then I can get to the drive-in restaurant four miles away a lot more quickly instead of walking two blocks up the street to a different place. And by the way, then I don't need to change my zoning code because I don't have to deal with the difficulty of that problem. I don't have to talk about affordable housing because poor people can get there from some, they can live somewhere else way away and get here. I don't have to deal with any of those issues. Those are all taken care of because the deal is congestion and you're just going to spend more money to fix it. You're going to tax someone else or have some opaque tax that I'm not going to see, and you're just going to continue to build on the current system that we already have. Andy Card, for all the wrong inspiration, is accidentally, or, or on purpose, or for whatever reason, is coming into a semblance of what a real solution to these problems would be. It's a system that provides feedback. I'm going to end this podcast now by letting you just hear from one quote from each of these guys that I thought was telling and original and is going to give you some insight into the thinking and the good and bad, the approach that we're getting out of our two parties today. And let's start with a quote here from Andrew Card. I love, I love it when people talk about, we want more people to ride bikes and we should have bike paths. And all of a sudden, the person who was riding the bike gets married. And then all of a sudden, they have a child. And then they have groceries and dry cleaning. Ooh, it's very hard to carry a lot of groceries and a child in the dry cleaning on a bike. Uh, so they need a car. And it's great when you're 22 to ride the bike. But when you're 32 and you've got a child dry cleaning, groceries, and you've got to drop the child off at daycare to say, I'm taking the bike. So that in, usually reverts to an automobile. When people complain about old white men, this is what they're talking about. Because what you're getting here from a guy who talked about feedback and market mechanisms and giving people options and choice and, and having that drive our investments, you're getting someone whose analysis of the world very much reflects his own condition. 
And I say this as a middle-aged white guy, right? I'm a 41-year-old white guy from central Minnesota. And I get frustrated when people sometimes say, well, you, you've got nothing you can tell me. You're just a, a middle-class white guy, right? But when people say that, I get it. I understand it because what they're talking about is this kind of thing. It's the kind of thing that says, this is the life I've lived. I think it's cute and I think it's nice. You want to ride your bike. Oh, how, how wonderful. But let me tell you something. When you get a little bit older and you start having kids, here's what you're going to do. And we know this because I've been there and I've done it and I know. And I know what you want and I know what you need and I know what you're going to do. And so I'm going to essentially favor policies that bring that about because that's the world that I see and that's the world that I live in. And when that world comes under attack, I'm going to do things to prop it up and make it successful. This is what people perceive when they hear someone like this talk. This is the out-of-touch white guy who doesn't get me. I understand that. I totally get it. When I hear someone like Andy Carr talk like this, I'm optimistic because he did say, you know, I like it when people ride bikes because he gets like, that's a choice. That's a choice in the marketplace that people are exercising. There's a lot of logical reasons why people would make that choice. It's healthier. It's cheaper. You know, in a lot of ways you can get places more quickly. There's a lot of reasons to make that choice. And Republicans are in general people who favor choices. But they also have this paternalistic bend to them at times, saying, well, I know what's going to happen. I know where you're going to end up. And because of that, we want to make sure we have the park and ride at Tyson's Corner or you're not going to be able to live the American dream. Let me give you the Ed Rendell quote. I put $400 billion of additional bond, state bond issue into bridge funding. The year that I left office, 2010, my last year in office, we were working on 1,400 bridges. Pennsylvania reduced its inventory of structurally inefficient bridges by over 2,000. And with other stimulus money for water and sewer, matched by state bonds of over a billion dollars for rail, for energy efficiency, we created enough infrastructure work that in my last month in office, January of 2011, we ranked ninth in the nation in job creation, shocking for an old industrial state. And our unemployment rate was almost two whole points lower than the national average. Both of those figures led all large industrial states. Both of those figures were attributable to investment in infrastructure. Now, I love Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is just a wonderful, wonderful state. It's some of the greatest cities in this country. I, I think it's spectacular. It's, it's one of the handful of states I would consider living in, besides Minnesota here, where I really enjoy but Pennsylvania is a disaster when it comes to transportation spending, when it comes to debt, when it comes to budget deficits. It, it is a horrific, horrific disaster. When you listen to Ed Rendell talk here, what's he so proud of? We bonded for this. We borrowed more money for that. Bonding is borrowing money, right? We borrowed a bunch of money to do this and to do that. Pennsylvania leads the country in structurally deficient bridges. And by leads the country, I don't mean like they're best. I mean, they're the worst. They have the most. Pennsylvania, he's saying we fixed 2,000 bridges. They have 25,000 bridges, right? Over 6,000 of them are structurally deficient. Yes, they borrowed a whole ton of money and they had a big make work kind of thing. And they put a bunch of people to work. And for a short period of time, they lowered their unemployment because they had a bunch of people working on this stuff. But now that's over. And now all they got is a bunch of bridges and a bunch of debt. Are you making good use of your bridges? Are you doing anything at all to question the return on investment that you're getting from these things? 
Are you doing anything at all to address your land use patterns so that you're becoming more productive over time? No, none of that is going, none of that is part of the conversation. It is all about the two variables that you get with these highly centralized, top-down, politically driven systems. You get GDP growth and unemployment. That's what we tell the Fed to do. That's what the Congress is trying to do. That's what the Treasury Department gives us the numbers on. You know, that's what the, we get from the GAO. That's, that's what we're getting from everybody is what's the GDP growth and what is unemployment? And if you're Ed Rendell, you can be very proud of what you did. If those are the only two things you're going to care about and measure and report and brag about, you can be really, really happy about what you did. But at the end of the day, from a strong town's perspective, all you did was build a bunch of stuff that you can't afford to maintain and create a bunch of debt doing it. You didn't do anything intelligent to make your state function any better, to get any higher return on that investment. And most importantly, you experience a lot of pain, right? Your state is going through a lot of pain. Your cities are suffering. You've got cities that are going bankrupt. Your state capital went bankrupt. You've got other cities that are going under. You've got places falling apart. But you haven't spared places the difficult feedback from their mistakes. You've allowed them one option, total failure. You've not given them any type of anti-fragile mechanism to learn from small things. You've just come in with big, huge make-work projects and created an enormous amount of liability for your citizens. I think Ed Rendell, when we call him the anti-Chuck, we're not joking. Like This guy personifies everything at Strong Towns that we disagree with. Everything that we are trying to stop is personified in Ed Rendell in his approach. When you hear Ed Rendell talking, just understand that I'm diametrically opposed to everything that the man says. I've never heard him say anything that I fundamentally agreed with. This is a disaster. And this is the type of policy and this is the type of approach that we empower when we simply throw money at the current system, whether you're going to get your train in return or your bike lane in return or your highway widened in return or whatever it is that you're hoping to get in return. What you are doing is you are empowering a system that at every level of government is working to bankrupt us by taking on enormous amounts of debt and enormous amounts of liability. Let me finish with the vice president who says something that I completely agree with. It is just not acceptable that the greatest nation in the world does not have across the board the single most sophisticated infrastructure in the entire world. It is not acceptable. And I could not agree more. It is not acceptable. It is not acceptable. And if I were to explain why that has happened, it's not because we lack resources. In fact, it's because we have too many resources. The fact that we've been able to do so much, the fact that we've been able to empower the people that Joe Biden has said, you know, we need the great leadership with the vision that don't worry about how we're going to pay for anything. They just go out and do it because they have a gut feeling that it's going to work out. They, their vision says we're going to do it. You know what? We've had too much of that kind of leadership. We've had too much of that kind of vision. It is unacceptable that a country as strong as ours, as great as ours, as powerful as ours, has been content to waste as much as we do, to throw away as much as we do, to rip our cities apart, to give people all these burdens in return, to ask them to 
pay even more taxes to do even more of this, to ask them to shoulder huge amounts of transportation costs, to suffer a lack of job opportunities, a lack of entrepreneurial opportunities, because we've subsidized all the corporations to come in and take over everything from the coffee shop to the retailer. I think it's unacceptable. And what we're trying to do at Strong Towns is push back on this, push back on this whole juggernaut approach of building more and more and more and just throwing our weight and our might like some kind of punch drunk sailor, right? Throwing our weight and our might at this problem over and over without any sophistication at all. To me, the greatness of America is our ability to innovate. It's our ability to come up with new ideas, new solutions, new approaches. Those are starting to emerge in this country. And we hear places like the transportation department in the state of Tennessee, who's put a halt to all new projects, who postponed a whole bunch of stuff, whose transportation commissioner said, you know what? If you've got a leaky roof and you can't afford to fix it, you've got no business adding on to your house. And they're starting to innovate there and figure out how do we take the funds that we have and get more out of this system? How do we do this in a more sophisticated way? That's my America. That's the America that I envision. One that does that kind of thing. If we simply throw money at this system, which is what the left in our country wants to do, right? The right in this country wants to throw money at the system too and fund something just crazy, fund their vision of what the future should be. I think that's nuts. The left wants to fund everything. It wants to fund the bad. It wants to fund the good. It just wants to fund, just build, 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 build. That's the story. To me, if we do that, we are shortchanging ourselves. We're shortchanging our future. And we're going to weaken our cities to the point where they're not going to recover. They're not going to recover till there's a collapse and things fall apart. And we all go Detroit. There's a lot of great things going on in Detroit today. But I think we can do those great things everywhere in this country without having to go through the pain that Detroit went through. To me, this whole America Answers thing just highlighted how dysfunctional Washington, D.C. is. And how if we're going to have a strong country made up of strong cities, it has to start with all of you taking ownership of your blocks, taking ownership of your neighborhoods, taking ownership of your cities and saying, we're going to make them strong towns. There's no other way this is going to happen. It is not going to happen from the top down. There is no way to get the federal policy right so that your block becomes successful. But for your city to become successful, your block needs to become successful and your neighborhood and your entire community. That means you reaching out to your neighbors, rolling up your sleeves, asking some difficult questions about your places, working to build coalitions in your place. We want to help you with that. In a future podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we're doing to help groups that want to make their places strong towns be able to do that. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being part of the Strong Towns movement and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody.
they know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. This whole foodie obsession that's going on in America's big cities, it just drives me crazy. It makes me sick. All right, well, let's be specific. You're talking about people that really fetishize special kinds yeah. of little... F- hipsters do it. They, hipsters do hipsters it Hipsters do it. Urbanites do it. But they wait, like, months in advance at reservations at the right little diner. Oh, you've got to go to Ming Mong's restaurant because the <laughs> chef is half Ethiopian and half Finnish and he makes <laughs> meatballs out of goat. And he, he makes a gnocchi with... Meyer lemon and squid. <laughs> he's got to taste it. Got, it's amazing. It's amazing, and they can't eat anything else. I mean, have we not learned a lesson from history, Conan? What was the last great civilization that gorged and vomited over and over again? But, yeah, the 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 Andy. Uh, the Romans. The Romans. I was. And what happened say to them? From they, the Midwest, but. <laughs> <laughs> he was going to say anyone yeah, yeah. from anyone from Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. yeah.